Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I'm the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Today's guest, Alex Gladstein. I'm sure many of you have heard of him before and listened to some of his podcasts, read um, The Little Bitcoin Book, of which he was one of the co-authors. I really wanted to get Alex on the show because he comes at Bitcoin from a completely unique perspective, fell down the rabbit hole on the humanitarian side of um, of things and, and what it can do for people living under authoritarian regimes. Um, I want to get straight into the interview. Lauren's going to ask the first few questions. She steals the show as usual. And I also want to give a, a quick shout out to CoinFloor and um, go check them out if you're a UK expat or if you're you know based in the UK. Bitcoin-only exchange. You can start uh, your auto-buys each week and start stacking sats. It's the easiest way to do it. That's coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten. And um, yeah, let's get into it. Thanks so much um, for listening. Hey guys, welcome to today's show. And uh, joining me is Alex Gladstein, the um, Chief Strategy Officer for the Human Rights Foundation. Alex, thank you so much for spending the time and uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Now, co-host is here, Lauren. Mm-hmm. And she has a question that she would like to uh, to ask Alex. I got two questions, so thank you. Okay. What is freedom? It's a great question. Humans have been asking that question for thousands of years. I think the best place to start is actually in ancient Greece, where there was a guy named Cleisthenes. He was part of the ruling class, uh, part of the elite establishment. And back then, everybody lived under uh, a dictatorship or a a tyranny or a kingdom where there was like one person in charge or or a small group of people in charge. And he was actually a member of that small group. And he said, no, I think we have a better way of doing things. We should be ruled by rules, not by rulers. Uh, We should be uh, enabling the people to rule themselves. So kind of the idea of democracy was born way back then in ancient Greece. And all around the world, people have been pushing towards this idea of uh, having the people elect their rulers and having the rulers work for us, right? So the politicians should really work for the people is the idea of democracy. And it's amazing because, it, you know, that that idea has evolved over time. And today, half the world lives under some sort of democracy. So half the people in our world live in a society where the government does actually sort of work for the people in a way and where the people have the power. They can sue the government. They can write articles challenging the government. In my country, in America, you can make a lot of money being a comedian, making <clears throat> making fun of our president. You can get really rich doing that. Um, you can start a nonprofit organization that that criticizes our government or sues our government or challenges it in different ways or organizes protests. These things are all legal in the United States and uh, obviously you know, in in many um, other countries around the world, ranging from Costa Rica to Japan to um, uh, Ghana to uh, Estonia, um, you know, all around the world, there are many different kinds of democracies, right? And uh, I think that's one aspect, one angle of freedom is um, 
political freedom. Uh, another aspect is um, information freedom. So basically your uh, ability to learn about the world and also speak your mind. So this used to be very um, restricted. So 2,000 years ago, if you wanted to learn about the whole world, you had to be very wealthy or be in a very specific class, be born to a particular family. And then you would go, you would get to go into these big libraries where they had all the knowledge. You know, obviously no digital infrastructure existed. So a couple thousand years ago, you wanted to learn about how the world worked, you'd have to go to like the Library of Alexandria, for example, something like that. Um, and oftentimes the church held power over this or the government held power or the mosque or wherever you were, there was some sort of authority. But over over the last 500 years, this has been broken, this monopoly of information. So we had the printing press, the radio, the television, and now the internet. So now everybody has a voice. Everybody can learn everything just through a phone. That's an amazing innovation. Um, so I think that you've had free, political freedom, you've had information freedom. And then the third piece of freedom we're just about to embark on is a big journey that we're we're about to embark on now, starting now. And that's monetary freedom. And that is made possible through Bitcoin. So you, in the same way that democracy has changed the world for the better, and I think most people don't want to go back to living under a dictator who, who've lived in a democracy. And most people who have the internet don't want to go back to an age where they don't have access to information and a small group control everything. We're about to embark on a journey where everybody's going to be part of money. Like we're all going to uh, help run the money and there won't be a small group of people in charge. It'll actually be the people's money. That's the vision for Bitcoin is that we all help run Bitcoin and no one in particular can stop it or censor a transaction or confiscate your funds. It's very different from the existing financial system, which is run by a handful of people who do keep a lot of people out. It's very unfair. They spend a lot of the people's money on saving um, uh, wealthy people who make big mistakes, big risks. And uh, there's a lot of corruption, a lot of theft, uh, a lot of stealing. It's not a pretty sight. And it's even worse in dictatorships. <laughs> Maybe it's okay in, in France or the United States. It's not so bad, but it's, it's very bad in other places. Um, so Bitcoin's like a, a new model, much like the internet was or, or like democracy was for us to achieve freedom. Um, and to collaborate and innovate and thrive and, and do what humans do best. So uh, I hope that helps uh, explain what freedom is, at least to me. What are human rights? It's a great question. No one has the answer to that. However, my, my interpretation, I like to focus on uh, what are called negative rights. So there's like negative and positive rights. So negative rights are um, protections against the government. So your freedom to speak your mind, your freedom to protest, your freedom to assemble, to make an organization with your friends, um, your freedom to own a piece of property and, and grow plants on it and own a farm, for example, and that's yours. Um, or you want to start a business and you want to make, um, you want to make cool little trinkets like this one here, which is, which is the, uh, which is the, uh, mascot of Bitcoin, the honey badger. So you want to, you want to 3d print these and make them and that's your business. Okay, great. Um, and, or you want to believe in a particular religion or not believe in a religion, uh, or you want to write an essay or have free speech. Um, these are all 
what are known as negative rights or civil liberties. So this is what these, these are the things that I spend my time protecting. Also, privacy is a huge one. You have the right to privacy in your home, right? Or you should. There are also positive rights. So these are these are also known as entitlements. So these are very different. And these are like um, what the society expects the government to give us. These are very different. So these are like your right to housing or your right to food. And these are very debatable, but basically some people believe that these are also human rights and that the government needs to give a certain amount of education or food or healthcare to everybody. So we debate and discuss both of these kinds of rights, but it's it's important that to, to know that there's two different kinds of human rights. There's rights that are protections against the government, and then there's the then there's rights where society demands things from the government. Um, so me personally, I focus on the former. I focus on civil liberties as opposed to entitlements. Well, they were excellent questions. Don't ask any more because I have to get yeah. some deep questions and deep answers out of Alex yeah, as well. Yeah, because you have no other questions. <laughs> yes. Well, say, uh, say thank you to Alex. Bye. Thanks. Great questions. Keep asking them. Don't ever stop. Yes. Okay. Yeah, very, uh, yeah, very important to keep asking. Um, and also your privacy. Yeah, defend your privacy. Yes, I will. Good. Yeah. And that includes locking your uh, your twin brother out of your bedroom, um, for sure. Very, uh, very, very good answers. Really appreciate that. Now, the the reason I wanted to have you on the show was because of this, um, because of your stance on on Bitcoin is completely unique. I think um, you know I, I came to the space from a financial background, and I came like many do, mm-hmm. um, number go up and speculative. Yeah, and when I saw you speak. And I saw some of, I listened to some of your podcasts that (laughs) I was talking to Peter McCormack about this, who put us in touch, because I think your interviews are the ones that I share the most with newbies coming into the space, because Mm -hmm. it's your stance and message. I want them to be first exposed to rather than the speculation. Um, How did you, if you wouldn't mind telling those that have, have not heard of you before, um, you know, what is the, the Human Rights Foundation? And then we'll talk about the Bitcoin rabbit hole. Sure, yeah. I mean, I've been working for the Human Rights Foundation or HRF on Twitter uh, or hrf.org online um, since 2007. And, and we're a nonprofit, a charity organization that focuses on helping people who live under authoritarian regimes. And the reason we do that is because if you live in an authoritarian regime, you can't, you don't have the same legal protections or... Um, ways to hold your government accountable that we do in in a place like maybe the United Kingdom or the United States. Um, it, this doesn't mean that democracies are, quote unquote, better necessarily, or that they always do the right thing. They don't. But they are structured differently. They're structured in a way where there's a competition of power and where the people are involved in decision making by electing representatives by creating an independent media, by doing exposés and investigations into those in power, um, by suing those who uh, break the law, and by having an independent judiciary through which those uh, lawsuits can be heard, et cetera, et cetera. So in democracies, we have a lot more ways to sort of pressure those in power. And they don't rule forever. They rule for, you know, you know short periods of time, uh, you know, this is very different from the authoritarian way, 
which is, you know, ideally for these dictators, they want to rule for 15, 20, 30, 40 years. They, they want to set up their family to rule. They want their children to rule. They want to take us back in time. You know, they want to take us back uh, pre-democratic revolution. And unfortunately, they're very popular. There are a lot of them, um, about 95 authoritarian regimes around the world, encompassing about 4.3 billion people. So most of the world's population still is under an authoritarian regime. And, um, you know, again, they don't have the same abilities to push back as, as we do. And that's why HRF focuses on helping, you know, like pro-democracy workers and journalists and technologists in those countries. So what was it then that um, through your work, I mean, how how long had you been working at uh, the Human Rights Foundation before you discovered Bitcoin? What was that kind of aha moment? <laughs> yeah, I actually... Um, I was looking at this the other day, um, so I can actually tell you. I have it pulled up here. No way. Okay. <laughs> okay. So the first time that um, I, you know, someone formally approached me to discuss Bitcoin was on July fifteenth, twenty thirteen. Um, you know, and someone actually wrote to me, and they were like, "Do you want to discuss how dissidents could perhaps get funding via Bitcoin?" Um, and, you know, I remember having that conversation and I thought it was interesting, but, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't dive in that much deeper at that point. And then the next year I ended up spending some time with a couple very hardcore Bitcoin advocates and, and again, they were pushing and I just sort of, I didn't quite get it. Um, so it was sort of on my radar, but not something I was, I was, uh, I was really pursuing, um, until, I had a conversation with somebody in 2016 where they were like, hey, I'm on the board of a Bitcoin mining company. Maybe we can help you connect your human rights advocates to, to Bitcoin um, Bitcoiners, you know? And I said, that, that that would be pretty cool. Let's let's try and do that. So a couple of months later, we did that. And uh, that sent me down the rabbit hole in a proper way. And I've been, um, you know, doing that ever since uh, all through 2017, 18, 19, and now 2020. So um that's been my trajectory and my appreciation for bitcoin comes from my background as a human rights activist because i've seen how financial repression works around the world and i've seen how people have trouble getting donations or running their organizations or even paying their employees or um <clears throat> having their investments seized confiscated devalued I've seen all that. You know, that's really common around the world. Maybe it's not so common in London or New York, but it's it's very, very common um, elsewhere. And um, I think Bitcoin is blooming into a, a a response or an alternative for for the for people who who face financial repression. And that's really why I um, I'm so committed to spreading the word about it. And I'm sure you've got many many examples of um, you know facing this kind of financial repression and. Um, personal repression and uh, violence against um, groups of people or individuals. Are there any particular ones that just shook you to the core? Uh, many. I mean, uh, I, for many years, I worked very closely with people who've escaped from North Korea, which is probably the most repressed place on earth. It's just a black hole of activity and positivity and information. In fact, literally, when you look at a satellite image of North Korea, at night, it's like you see the Korean Peninsula all lit up in the south, and then there's just this like ocean of darkness, you know, to the north, where the only export is like human suffering. 
And I've met a lot of people who've escaped and their stories are really harrowing. Uh, there's one uh, in particular, a young woman named Yonmi Park, who um, wrote a book about her experience called In Order to Live. But, uh, you know, what a lot of people don't know is that uh, most people who escape North Korea are women. Um, they leave to try and help their family. And a lot of them get tricked into human trafficking uh, and they get stuck in China in a place they don't really speak the language and they they're illegal immigrants. So if they do anything wrong, they know they'll get sent back to North Korea where they'll, they'll either get executed or put into a concentration camp. So, you know, they kind of have to play by the rules. And, and that means a lot of them become sexual slaves and all kinds of horrible things. So I learned a lot about that. Um, it's one of the world's biggest refugee crises is people streaming out of North Korea into China in search of a better life, more food, more, more money for their family. So Hearing stories like that, like what Yonmi Park had to go through, and then and then learning how they they made it and they got to freedom somehow, and they made it to South Korea, and then they could start living a free life. Those those have been some of the most powerful stories I've ever heard. How do you, when faced with this, how how do you like how do you keep a you know a faith in humanity? Because of how persistent these folks are. I mean, they risked everything. And it's like when you leave North Korea, you're not, if you, I don't know, I'm sure most people have seen the matrix, but it's like, it's like you're taking the red pill because, um, or, or, you know, you're leaving the Truman show bubble. Like you, 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 all you know is what you know. You don't know that you, you may have an inkling in your head that things aren't right, but you know, maybe you heard a broadcast radio broadcast or, or read a forbidden book or saw a forbidden show. So you know there's something else out there. But you're leaving all of your family and everything you've ever known behind, right? So it's like this really incredibly brave moment. And what you immediately encounter on the other side isn't pretty. I mean, again, like most of these people get exploited in China. But for those who persist and, and they make it to a relatively free country that will actually allow them to go to the South Korean embassy and get flown to South Korea, I mean, they, they get to then enter into um, one of the freest, most wealthy countries, most advanced countries in the world, South Korea. So their persistence is very inspiring and also their effectiveness. I mean, over time, if you look at uh, these like nonviolent movements of people power, they're very effective, much more effective than violent movements, just statistically. So whether it was in the Philippines or in any of these color revolutions or I've interviewed a guy recently who took down the dictator in Serbia, Milosevic, with uh, peaceful tactics in the night in, in the '90s. Student tactics. They ended up toppling this fascist maniac without a gun, without a shot fired. It was really amazing. So, so I, I believe in uh, in these like nonviolent movements and in the power of freedom and democracy because it it's this force that keeps pushing forward. You know. Yeah. So instead of like uh, focusing on the authoritarian regime and you know the the atrocities that they are mm -hmm. committing, you're drawing inspiration from the people that you meet that are actually have managed to escape and gone through all of that hell. Yeah. I mean, you have to do both. We have to doubt, be angry fear. and we have to expose the bad, but we also have to celebrate the good. And how much of a difference then is Bitcoin starting to make for for some of these people when you can get? Yeah. I mean, I mean, we're so early. I mean, people don't realize people are like, oh, Bitcoin was a thing. Like I heard about it. It was a bubble. It popped. Like we're at the very outset of a very grand uh, adventure here with uh, with Bitcoin. Um, if you know about Bitcoin and you have have used it or own some Bitcoin, you're a very you're a pioneer. You're at the very beginning of something that will totally change the world. So, um, you know, the thing is, these stories you know, I can tell you about how Bitcoin's making an impact, but 
you know, a lot of these things are in general terms because first of all, <laughs> if someone has used Bitcoin to like improve their life inside of a dictatorship, they're not going to go tell the uh, media about it. Like that's a bad idea. Like they, they want to practice good operational security. <laughs> um, so Christ. it's more like a meta effect uh, than I think you're going to find like a ton of personal stories. That's less likely with Bitcoin because people aren't going to want to share those personal stories. Um, however, I mean, just to be brief, I mean, there are stories and testimonies of people who use Bitcoin as a, a self-sovereign store of value and savings account in China, where where otherwise the government monitors every transaction and prevents you from sending a certain amount of money abroad every year through capital controls. So with Bitcoin, you can like defeat that and you can own the product of your time and energy and you can store it in your own way um, and the government can't take it from you. That's very, very powerful. Um, in Venezuela, people, including people I know who I've met, several of them actually, um, earned money in Bitcoin uh, through doing software work while they were still in Venezuela. And they, they earned the money that way. And they, over time, built up enough Bitcoin to where they felt comfortable leaving Venezuela because everybody's trying to flee. It's a humanitarian crisis. And they stored the Bitcoin, you know, on their wallet some way. And they crossed the border, you know, without needing to worry about carrying a giant bag of gold or cash or however else you used to store your assets. No, they like either memorized uh, the, the 24 words or wrote it down or had it on their phone. You know, they, they got across the border and they ended up, a lot of them ended up going into Colombia and then even moving to like Canada or the United States or Spain. So Bitcoin allowed them to do what refugees previously had never been able to do before. You've got people in countries that have bank crises, whether it's, um, you know, whether it's the... Um, Argentinian crises or the Lebanese crises right now uh, who are using Bitcoin to escape what's happening on the ground where dollars are hard to come by, where cash is still king, but the dollar is it's hard to find. You've got people escaping like onerous controls in Palestine. You've got people escaping, you know, a very oppressive regime in Iran using Bitcoin um, or even escaping U.S. sanctions. And then even in open societies, you've got like we had this thing in America called Operation Choke Point, where like the government just basically was like, hey, there are a bunch of these industries we don't like very much. We're going to like prevent we're going to choke them. We're going to prevent them from becoming financially viable. So maybe you were in, um, you know, the adult industry or you wanted to sell paraphernalia for marijuana or, or whatever. You know, um, these are nonviolent, peaceful things that people do, but the government decided they didn't like them. So they tried to end their ability to to function by crushing their access to bank accounts, things like that. So again, Bitcoin allows you to, to keep going. So I think you can find a story, you know, anywhere, even what um, <clears throat> Peter McCormick, <clears throat> who, who introduced us, right? His story was like he was able to to use Bitcoin to buy a particular drug for his, his ailing family member, right? So this is, this is, you know, this is, this is what people have used it for up to this point in, in some ways. And as um, the chief strategy officer, that that puts you like uh, right at the you know the, the cutting edge of, of making decisions. What's kind of like the the most dangerous tasks that um, you guys have had to do in the past? I'm sure you can't talk about what's going on right now. Um, well, I mean, anything we do or we gather human rights activists in one place, we have to do with a high degree of caution and security and uh, care because they're all targeted, you know, they're all considered terrorists by their governments or whatever. So that's something that's always um, something we, we 
we treat um, with the highest amount of respect and care. And we've been doing it many, many times, you know, over the last 12 years, every year, numerous times a year. And we've, we've grown a very strong, healthy community. So, so I, I think that's always been a big challenge, but we're, we're, we're up to it. You know, now we're, we've had to do some virtual events because of COVID, but we're, we're hoping to get back into the, the mix physically uh, in the fall. And if you were to rank authoritarian regimes, um, like top three and, <clears throat> and, um, best newcomers or up and comers, who, who would you, um, well, the most repressive regimes arguably are North Korea, Eritrea, and Uzbekistan in terms of how tightly repressed they are. But who's inflicting the most damage on the most people is almost certainly the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and then you have a guy in Rwanda, K- Kagame, who you know has been praised by a lot of people in the West, but in reality, he has triggered and sparked uh, he played a key role in triggering and sparking these horrible wars in the Eastern Congo where the result has been millions dead, millions dead. So he's probably, Kagame's probably the dictator who has the most blood on his hands of any dictator alive. And that's saying a lot because you've got Assad, Syria, got Putin who helped crush Chechnya and, and Ukraine. And, um, You've got the Saudis who've done untold amounts of death and destruction in Yemen. Uh, And you've got others. Um, Look what the Venezuelans have done to their own people. But, I mean, Kagame, bizarrely, he's up there. He's really up there. Man, yeah, I had no idea of this stuff. It's amazing what you, you know, what you just don't know, right? That's that's crazy. It's you learn a lot by by talking to people from different countries and just by doing this practice of interviewing, investigating, and and learning. You know, yeah, for sure. Now I saw your article which you wrote on. Um, I'm going to mispronounce Quillette or Quillette. Quillette, you, yeah, Quillette. Right. Okay. At about um your your worries around um the the apps, the tracing apps, um or whatever they're calling them these days. Do you want to talk a little bit about you know what's going on in China and other other countries? Because um, I know several countries are trying to roll this out at the moment and test it. I'm sure for their, their bloody yeah. countries around well, the world. Sure. I mean, just to be brief, uh, there are a lot of ways to fight a virus like COVID, and a lot of them are very important. And we 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 should certainly pr- promote the wearing of masks in public places and social distancing and. Governments should use their power to create cheap universal testing where you can go get tested without exposing your identity. Super, super important, like drive-through testing type stuff. Um, in addition, like healthcare infrastructure obviously would be important for the private sector and the public sector to work together to to improve um, taking care of the sick and, and doing something called contact tracing, which is like uh, when you go to the hospital and you're sick, they sit you down and they interview you. Who have you come into contact with in the past few few days, weeks? You call those people, you warn them that they may have been exposed, okay? So now we have like a whole school of thought that says, hey, we should automate that process. We should use our phones to track what pe- where people are so we can kind of see them on this map. And we can say, oh, like, you know, you went to this, you, went, you were in this part of the city yesterday, therefore maybe we should like flash a warning to all the people who were in that part of the city. 
This is a very dangerous, slippery slope. And what it's going to lead to is just a lot of false positives, a lot of chaos, a lot of violations of privacy rights, and ultimately a lot of social engineering. So what's happened in China is that in order to leave your uh, kind of residence, if you live in Hubei province, uh, you've got to show a particular color on your phone to to get out of your building or go to work, get go to a market or go in a public transport system. And uh, that is not a biometric color. It's not connected to your body. It's, it's given to you by an algorithm or by an authority. And they say you're green, amber, or uh, red. And if you're amber or red, you know, you can't leave. You know, if you're green, you can go. And this kind of color coding of the citizenry is like, is like a, a social engineering um, goal of the Communist Party. And it's certainly not going to be temporary. Like this is going to be a way of life, you know. And what's crazy is even the NHS in Great Britain has uh, has a document leaked today showing that that's essentially kind of part of where they want to go with their own app. They, they really want people to, uh, you're going to have like a status inside the app that you will like display. And, you know, that's, that's, that's on the way to color coding. Do you know what I mean? Like if this, if this happens now, it was a leaked document, it's internal. It hadn't launched yet. Wired published it just a couple out, just an hour or two ago. But, um, so I expect a lot of pushback from British citizens against that, but we'll see. We'll see. I mean, you know, my, my whole thesis is that we don't need phone tracking or surveillance to fight the virus. Like we just don't, it's just not necessary. We can do it through, uh, again, masks, testing, social distancing, investment in healthcare tech, uh, traditional contact tracing. Like this is good public education information. That's how you beat this thing. Not 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 through spying on citizens. But this is the perfect excuse, right? It, it, it yeah, seems- I mean, governments never let a good crisis go to waste. And a lot of them have used the coronavirus to whether it's launch color coding schemes in China or in Hungary. In the middle of the EU, you have a Orban who decided, Viktor Orban, who you know used the COVID as an excuse to start ruling by decree, which is the dictionary definition of a dictatorship. So um, it, it's 10 million citizens in the EU now live under a dictator. It's, it's pretty crazy. So um, that's where we are. So be very careful. I mean, I just don't think we need to give up our liberties for public health. I think they can they can be simpatico. They can they can thrive together. And when this was all coming out of China back um, December, well, November, December, January, did you have people on the ground there that were giving you the heads up of what's going on? I mean, yeah. I mean, like late January, anyone who was on Twitter could see what the heck. There was some crazy stuff happening in Wuhan, you know. Mm-hmm. We didn't find out until later the full extent of it, but I think anybody who had eyes open was, was, was watching – a, a very large metropolitan region in China get shut down in, in the January 24th, 2020. So look, if you missed that and you didn't know it was coming, that's on you, you know, for not digging deep enough. But th- that was clearly obvious to a lot of us. We were like, whoa, something really intense is happening. But yeah, I mean, since then, we've we've talked with a lot of Chinese human rights activists who, um, who um, you know, talk about how the government covered up the origins of the pandemic. And instead of uh, being open about it and maybe going to the G7 and talking to Britain and Germany and the United States and Russia on December 30th, 31st, when they knew there was this novel coronavirus, they tried to hide it. They tried to cover it up and it didn't work and it got out. And they, they really, you know, they caused this whole global pandemic, the Chinese Communist Party. So, you know, they are largely to blame for the spread of this thing. They could have, they could have stopped it. And then um, other governments like Iran, did the same thing. They covered it up. They lied about it. 
and it spread from there to Europe, right? So it's it's pretty crazy to watch. But it, it what it what it underlines is that human rights everywhere matter to anyone anywhere. Like it's 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 no longer just some dictatorship on the other side of the world. It's uh, their policies end up impacting us, which is why promoting human rights around the world is critical right now. Yeah, hundred percent. And thanks for all of the work you do because um, you know just listening to you talk and uh, you know clearly it's, this is, I mean. I don't want to dox you too much, but it looks like you're a much younger man than I am, and you've been doing this. <laughs> you've been doing this for a long time. Um, you know, you it's um, you know, hats off. It's uh, a privilege to uh, to get to speak with you. Yeah, well, you know, I'm 34, so I've been doing this uh, since 2007. So since I was like 21, you know. Wow. It is. It is what it is. So. Here's here's one um, because we, you, we can all fall down the dystopian rabbit hole very very easily. Uh, you know, it's easier to write negative headlines. We all know that. And um, but and I know you've done some work on this before. I've listened to some uh, essays that you've you've written. If you could write the next Black Mirror, um, positive, optimistic Black Mirror, uh, the ten year mm-hmm. outlook in kind of uh, in a world where I think you and I are probably in the line you know, in alignment with what Bitcoin could um, do for humanity. Mm-hmm. What do you think that looks like for you? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, um, if we build on Bitcoin the right way, I mean, we could have uh, interactions and payments and transactions in our daily lives that aren't spied on, um, that aren't sold to the highest bidder, that aren't stolen by governments and used against us. We can reclaim privacy in our daily lives and, uh whether that means the average person in a democracy or not, you know, it doesn't matter. It's helpful. So we can kind of reduce the amount of information that is collected about us by using Bitcoin and by building on Bitcoin and investing in in the companies building on Bitcoin and the nonprofits and organizations in the space. Um, They are the key to the future. If we want to have a future of freedom, we have to have digital money that's, that's decentralized and relatively private. It's so, so important. So, so that's really the key is can 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 it work? And I think it's almost unstoppable just because of the way that Bitcoin is built. It is this scarce digital asset, the only scarce decentralized digital asset in the world. I mean, it's really, it's absurd. How, like gold really, think about the power gold held over the world and, and still does in some ways. I mean, but especially up until about a hundred years ago, it was like, I mean, gold was really the ultimate good, right? And think about how much better Bitcoin is than gold. I mean, think about how to do a gold transaction is absurd. We have to shave down some metal and melt. It. I mean, Bitcoin is instant. It teleports. I mean, it's it's an even scarcer good. And it's just mind blowing to me how how obvious it is that Bitcoin's going to just totally change the world. And um, we're just in a very early phase, and people are very skeptical, and they've heard a lot of bad things. And it's just going to take time. But this uh, rivalrous environment we're in with governments where they're all competing against each other is going to benefit Bitcoin in a huge way because some are going to start to accumulate it and others are going to start to, and then there's going to be this race. Okay. And then they're all going to be mining for it. And ironically, this is all going to strengthen Bitcoin. It's going to make Bitcoin more decentralized, more powerful, more strong. So as they all compete to fight each other, you know, they're going to be empowering this, uh, tool, this network, this protocol, which will, liberate humans and and give us our freedom back it's pretty amazing actually to think about the way it may it may go in the future because it it taps into the base human emotion of greed 
but it, it's like a machine that turns greed into freedom. It's it's pretty incredible. So that's my like long-term view on why I'm, I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic because humans are greedy and I know they're going to want some. And I know all these governments and corporations are going to want some and they're all going to get involved and that's just going to make it so much stronger and it's going to remain permissionless and censorship resistant and confiscation resistant and pseudonymous. Um, and, you know, uh, it's going to continue to have its known issuance schedule. And that's just very inspiring to me. So that's, that's cool. We like that. We like that a lot. And, and how do you feel, I, you know, I'm, I, I understand exactly what you're saying. People come in, you know, with greed and then somehow it, it overtakes you and it changes you fundamentally. Um, it doesn't have to change you. No, no, no. You can be greedy and evil, but you, what what you're doing is undermining yourself. So if you're greedy and evil and you're some dictator and you're going to like start mining Bitcoin or, or steal it or whatever, over time, what you're all of a sudden, all these other people in the regime are learning about Bitcoin and they're like, whoa, wait a second. Like, what is this thing? And over time, you're eroding your own power to control society. Because like, how does how do governments control society? One of the biggest tools is through the economy, if not uh -huh. the biggest tools, through the money, right? It's what everybody uses every day, right? So if the money is something they can no longer control, then we have a freer society and a freer world. So that's that's uh, tremendous to me. And it's not intelligent. It's not a life form. It's just a thing. But Bitcoin is... The the, the way that it functions will be studied for hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. this, this, this adoption period is so fascinating. It'll be studied in the far future people will marvel over it. Um, it's just amazing that someone could come up with such an incredible technology and it could literally be worthless for several years almost so that people could experiment with on it and, and hang out and discuss it and chat on all these forums about it. It wasn't even worth anything. So they were able to fix all the bugs early and like get it ready for prime time. And then it was worth a little bit. It was worth a few dollars and it was worth $10. It was $50 and eh, nobody cared. And for years it continued to get stronger and, you know, more effective and people kept fixing problems with it. And by the time it was worth like a thousand dollars and governments finally started to look at it like 2013, 2014, they couldn't stop it. It was too big. And I, I, that, that's not a replicable process. It's not like somebody tomorrow in London can say, Hey, I got the new Bitcoin. It's not like people are going to be like, Oh, cool. Let me know when it's, uh, let me know when it's up and running. And no, people will immediately try to front run the market, invest in it, exploit it. Governments will try to kill it. You, you, it's, you, you know, Satoshi had one shot and they knocked it out of the ballpark. Truly. Yes. Great analogy. What's, um, I was going to ask you about, you know, what the resources that um, that you looked at and you learned from. But I think that, um, you know, it's probably a, a good point to bring up the uh, the book, the project that you are part of, which um, yeah. has helped unlock many people, uh, myself included, because, you know, I, I get unlocked from a, a page of every book, I think. And I read the Little Bitcoin book and I loved it. Uh, do you want to tell the listeners a, a little bit about how that came together and, and who else was uh, part of that project? Sure. Um, I personally just was upset or frustrated with the lack of um, kind of like intro level uh, material online, like in, in a book form to help people understand Bitcoin. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff out there, but it tends to either be a um, very technical, like like for coders, like Andreas's books are awesome, but, but they're hard for people who don't code to understand. They're not written in that sense at least his like mastering Bitcoin books. 
And then there are books that are highly focused on uh, economic theory, okay? Th- these are niche audience. You're only going to get a handful, of, a fraction of people who are coders or into economic theory. We wanted to write a book for the average smart person or the curious person or inquisitive person who, you know, may not be into coding or into economic theory, but is really successful at what they do. And maybe they're in business or maybe they're in uh, the creative field or maybe maybe they're a government official or whatever and, and or in the media. And they, they again, they don't know how to code and they don't really care about economic theory. Uh, you know, they don't care about, um, you know, chartalists versus uh you know, versus monetarists or whatever, like that's just, they don't care, you know, that they're doing their thing, but they want to learn about Bitcoin. And we wanted to create a portal for them to, to get in there and learn. And, um, and that's what we try to do with little Bitcoin book. I mean, the first chapter doesn't even mention Bitcoin. It just talks about how money's broken. And then it goes from there and it tries to explain it in a way that I hope like is very accessible by, I don't know, I would say someone in high school should be able to read it really easily, you know, who's like, 13, 14 years old and inquisitive. Like not, not, nothing should go over their head was the idea. That, that was very important. And um, it's meant for business leaders and and students alike, you know? And it's uh, something I got the pleasure of writing with uh, seven other co-authors from around the world. You know, so the authors came from Asia, Africa, Latin America, the former Soviet Union, um, North America. So really rich, diverse background of perspectives. People who were CEOs, uh, angel investors, activists, students, coders, teachers. So lots of different backgrounds, basically. But we all agreed on this idea that Bitcoin was worth writing about, and we wanted to create a tool to help people understand it. So that's the story of the little Bitcoin book. And you got that book together in like record time, right? It was, you know... It was done with a book sprint. A book sprint. So we we basically, yeah, all eight of us lived in a house together for five days and we wrote the book. <laughs> that sounds awesome. It was like yeah. Sunday, we figured out it when we did the table of contents. Monday, we each wrote a chapter. Tuesday, Wednesday, you know, Thursday, we just edited, 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 edited. And then, yeah, we left. We still had to do some editing. But um, we even had one of the guys, Luis, from the Philippines. He's a graphic designer. So by the time that we left the house, the book was laid out and almost ready for upload to Amazon. We just had like a few more rounds of edits to do. But um it was a really amazing experience, truly. I'm very proud of it, and I hope it helps people. What can I say? And, you know, self-publishing, decentralized, um, you know. It, it, totally. Right. Man. You, we've sold, uh, yeah, we've sold thousands of copies. I'm not going to say the actual number, um, but it, it, we've sold lots of copies of this book, both did, both by ebook, audiobook, Guy Swan did our audiobook and, and, and Kindle, and the physical copy, which is, which is cool. And, yeah, it's brilliant. What else do you think? is like something that, you know, one of these books or a podcast or something, whatever, you know, a piece of material that helped you in in your journey of putting all this together. Well, just for me, just all of Andreas Antonopoulos's mm-hmm. like talks were key. So he has these collections of his talks in ebook form, which are highly recommended. They're called the Internet of Money. So, I mean, start with there. Start with the Internet of Money. He'll really teach you all the basics about Bitcoin. And he's just the master. So, got to start with the master, you know? Definitely. Alex, I ask one question at the uh, at the end of each show. And mm-hmm. it goes along the lines of, if you could implant your knowledge about Bitcoin and what it could mean for our future, for the future of humanity, who would then go and share that message and your knowledge 
with their audience, an audience far bigger than you could ever imagine, who would that person be and why? It's mm. a great question. Um, it would... Ironically, <laughs> one of the people who would be in the top five already has been implanted, uh-huh. and that's uh, Jack, Dor- Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Square yes. and Twitter. Um, he's already totally on board. Um, I would say Tim Cook because I think that Apple could help build products for people to use Bitcoin in a beautiful way, like in the spirit of, of jobs, if jobs were still around. You know, you have the iPhone, um, you have the iPad, you have the, you know, the MacBook. I want an iNode. Like I want Apple to build like a super badass full node that I can plug in easily at home that connects with the rest of my system that runs my little Bitcoin, you know, uh, runs the software so in a sovereign way. And that it connects seamlessly with my hot wallet on my phone. And it just, and then that, that connects via a payment interface with lightning to Apple pay. I mean, that would be such a game changer. So I guess I'm going to have to go with Tim Cook. Right. Well, you hit it. You heard it here first, listeners. If there's any uh, Apple engineers. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, imagine because that because that's how you make Bitcoin right. cool. Is if you know what I mean? If Apple's doing it and they're allowing people to run Bitcoin software in their stuff, then it's that's the hats really the goal. You know that would be incredible because then you'd have brilliant, beautiful design designing the stuff. You know, with a high focus on security and privacy, hopefully. So. Anyway, that would be the dream. The slick user interface that um, that so many like uh, millennials and younger generations are going to be uh, used yeah, to, right? Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, totally. And yeah, it's, that's definitely been one of those things that's been missing. Well, Alex, where can people um, find you and uh, reach out to you? At yeah, the best way is on Twitter, just at Gladstein, G L A D S T E I N. Give me a shout. Um, the DMs are open and. Uh, Otherwise, check out href.org, and thanks for having me on. Appreciate it, Man, it's been so, so great to have you on and um, to listen to your stories and to listen to your, uh, like I said, unique point of view. Is there anything before you go that you would like to leave uh, any last message for the listeners? Mm. Yeah, a friend said this, um, Nick Carter, and I thought it was really poignant. um, And he's talking about the economy, what's happening right now. (laughs) And he says... uh, if you aren't radicalized, you aren't paying attention. So let's leave it with that. <laughs> okay, we need t-shirts printed. That's, uh, that's yep. awesome. Alex, thanks so much for your time. It's been a great pleasure to meet you. Thank you. Take care, man. Hey, guys. Thank you for listening to the show. And thanks to Alex again for sparing the time to come on and uh, share his insights and his knowledge with us. Um, like I said at the beginning of the show, it's, uh, it was... Um, a unique opportunity to get Alex on and discuss, you know, his, his point of view of, of what Bitcoin is going to, you know, mean for, what did he say? Like 4.8 billion people. I think, I think it was 4.8 billion. It blew my mind under an authoritarian regime. And we, we just take it for granted. I mean, here we are listening and making podcasts like it's simple. You know, you can't do that in, in half of these countries around the world. It's mad. We, we don't give it a, a second's thought. And he, he was very inspiring with his answer to my question, you know, um, you know, in, in face and in spite of everything that you you come up against and you see. I mean, he must see some 
and hear of and get exposed to some horrible situations and atrocities. But he manages to still draw inspiration and optimism from from the the individual's battles and um, the human action of you know of trying to escape these situations and just pushing forward at you know no matter what and um, really really inspiring to hear because it could be you know you you could easily you know dwell on the negative side of things and you know find yourself in a pretty dark place but he's um, he, he sees the future. The future is, uh, it can be bright, you know, as he said, if we build out Bitcoin correctly, um, which I think, you know, is happening so far, um, what it could mean is just, if you're not, <laughs> you know, if you're not there yet, not in that space, not in that frame of mind, that's cool. I'm sure it will happen um, soon enough. Or if you're very, very new listening to the show and you're probably thinking, what the hell is he talking about? Um you know, once you've been in the space a little while, these these feelings they start creeping in, and you, you know you will have that that second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, fifteenth aha moment as you carry on um, your journey down the rabbit hole. Um, yeah, so thanks, uh, huge thank you again to Alex. Um, like I said at the beginning of the show, if uh, if you're UK based or uh, UK expat, go and check out uh, coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten. Uh, if you're based in the US and you want to start stacking some sats and learning about Bitcoin, you know, the right way, uh, head over to uh, swanbitcoin.com uh, forward slash once bitten. And that is a US based Bitcoin only uh, way uh, company. And it's the best way for you guys to start uh, getting exposure to this thing we call Bitcoin and um, start your education, start your journey. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks to um, to everyone that takes time to interact on Twitter and retweet and like and comment. Uh, really, really appreciate everything that you're doing. Um, it helps the show grow in an organic kind of way, and I think that is always the best way to grow. And, um, yeah, really appreciate it. Take care, and I look forward to the next show. <laughs>